Let's turn now to read two readings, one from Matthew 28 and then one from Acts chapter 2, verse 29 to 36. And I'm sure that you will be aware of the theme that I'll be looking at this morning as we go through these two readings. So firstly, Matthew chapter 28. From verse 11 to verse 20, which is the last verse of the chapter and the last verse of Matthew's Gospel. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then reading from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And verse 29 to 36. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And may God indeed bless to us these readings from his holy word. Amen. Let's come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we look to you now to give us understanding, to give us insight, to keep us from error, to guide us into the truth. And we pray, Lord, that as we direct our thoughts towards this portion of Holy Scripture, that you would enable us to serve you ever more faithfully in this world in which we live. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. If my voice seems a little different this morning, it's because I had an endoscopy on Friday, and which was fine, right? And nothing went wrong. But the trouble is that just before they performed the procedure, the anaesthetist got a, a, spray, a can of Bagon. Well, it wasn't Bagon, but it was... I don't know what it was. It was something. And she sprayed it down my throat. And um, my throat just sort of went numb. So I guess it was some sort of anaesthetic. I don't know. And um, it sort of left my throat quite dry. And it's still quite dry. Um, so if things seem a little different, that's the reason for it. Now, quiz time. Quiz time. When you were at school, for some of you, that probably is a great feat of the imagination. When you were at school and if you said or you wrote something and you used two negatives, so you said something like, um, I will not never go shopping. What did your teacher say to you? Your teacher would say, I am sure. No, 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 that is wrong. You never use two negatives in a sentence. And of course, in the English language, that is a grammatical rule, isn't it? You do not use two negatives together. In some languages, of course, it's not the case. In modern Greek, you can use two negatives and it just makes it more emphatic, which I, is an idea I quite like. I think perhaps we should introduce it to English. But in English, no. Two negatives are not allowed. However, there is an odd thing about English that there is an instance where two positives actually make a negative. Right, this is English, not mathematics. Two positives make a negative. And that's in modern colloquial English if someone says to you, oh, I'm going to make a million dollars from my invention and someone says to you, yeah, right. Okay, two positives, but they make a definite negative, don't they? So I've called what I'm going to talk about this morning, change the world? Yeah, right. Because it's something that we just don't believe. So when I talk about this, let's change the world, do I sound like a revolutionary? And some might think, well, yes, you do. You're, you're, you're wanting to start a, a riot and go down Queen Street with placards and become a revolutionary. And you're probably thinking, well, you want to change the world, but you're not going to do it. It's impossible. Just think of the trouble that we have in our world today. Think of Iraq, Afghanistan, think of southern Sudan, think of the Ukraine. Uh, everybody knows of what's happening in the Ukraine. Uh, think of all of these things. Let's change the world. Yeah, right. It's never going to happen. It's a noble idea, but so impractical. Is that what you think? And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's what you think. It's a perfectly natural response to what we hear on the news every day. And of course, it doesn't have to be overseas problems either. I, maybe I'm wrong with this, but I am sure that when I was a child, if there was a murder in Australia, it was big news. We were all horrified. 
that this could happen <coughs> in Australia. And today, um, well, you get a drive-by shooting. Oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, it's something that we get used to, isn't it? The world is in such a sorry state. So we think to overcome evil, to hold the tide back, to restore traditional values, it's just an impossible task. It's just not going to happen. And it's no surprise that some Christians believe even further that, than that. They believe it's impossible. In fact, they believe it is a sin to try and stop the spread of evil because the more quickly evil spreads, then the more that the Lord is going to be forced to come down and to intervene and to bring about his kingdom. So, and Elizabeth and I have had a person say to us, no, 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 it's quite wicked for you to pray that good will triumph. No, you shouldn't be doing that, which is a very strange idea, but it's the way that some Christians think. So this is a way perhaps that secretly we feel, let the world go to hell. The sooner it goes to hell, the sooner our Lord will return and he will rule over all things and that will be wonderful. So what are we going to think about this, about this whole business of changing the world? Well, there are two thoughts that I'd like us to sort of dispense with, first of all, before we have a look at um, the Bible passage. The first one is that people are changing the world all the time. It's happening all the time. So we mustn't think that to desire to change the world is something very weird, very strange. Hitler changed the world. Karl Marx changed the world. Mother Teresa changed the world. Whitlam changed Australia in some profound ways. Muhammad changed the world. And, of course, Jesus Christ changed the world. People are changing the world all the time. The only question is, is it a change for better or a change for worse? But change is happening all the time. And the second point I'd like to make is, it's never majorities who change the world. It is never the so-called grassroots that change the world. It's always been passionate minorities who change the world. The Russian Revolution in 1917 was not carried out by a big, uh, swirling movement. It was carried out by a small number of people who saw their opportunity. That's why they were called the Bolsheviks, because they were a small group, as opposed to the Mensheviks, who were the larger group. And they were determined to take this opportunity and they were committed, body and soul, to the cause of converting the world to communism. And they took it, they grabbed it. The Christian church didn't spread in the first 200 years because the Roman Senate said, oh, look, this Christianity sounds pretty good. Uh, we'll make it the religion of the whole empire. And so that we voted it in, and there was this great uh, groundswell of support for it. No, it wasn't. The Christian church was spread by a small, passionate minority. Never, never think that you have to be part of a large majority who support the Christian religion for anything to happen. That's not true. Okay, so there are two ideas that I believe we needed to look at and to dispense with 
before we come to look at the main issues. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, we have what is often called the Great Commission, and that's a perfectly good title for it. Here, Jesus is giving the disciples their marching orders. He's giving to them his great overarching commission that is to underlie all their activities and to be their their vision statement. Um, It's a very modern idea, isn't it, this vision statement. Just about every organisation has their vision statement or their mission statement. Even Queensland Police and Queensland Health They have their vision statement. Uh, And this, in a sense, is the vision statement that Jesus is giving to the disciples. Now, there are many, many things that we could talk about in this Great Commission, and whole books have been written just on this Great Commission. I just want to ask three questions of it. And once we've answered those, well, we're done for this morning. I want to ask why, I want to ask who, I want to ask when. Why, who, when? Now, for the children who are here this morning, and you hear me say why and when, and you're probably thinking, gee, he sounds funny. I'm not sounding funny at all. You see, when I was a child, we were taught to say why and when. Now, my own children laugh at me because I say it like that, and I say to them, I'm not going to stop saying it like that for anyone. That's the way I was taught. Because people today just say why and when. They're wrong. They're wrong. (laughs) So, why, who and when? Firstly then, why? Why has Jesus given this great commission to his disciples? And we need to go right back to the beginning. Because the things in the Bible don't sort of pop up out of nowhere. They all have their roots, their origins back in time and this commission that Jesus gives to his disciples is not something out of the blue it is a restating of what God planned right at the beginning so in Genesis chapter 1 we had that passage where God is saying to Adam and Eve this is your commission this is what you are to do that you people, you and your descendants after you, you're to take this world that I have given you and you're to make use of it and you're to be good stewards of it and you are to use it as a place where you can glorify me and as you progress and as you develop more things, you will give glory to me and worship me, the almighty God who has given this beautiful world into your hands. So mankind was to move across the face of the earth and everywhere mankind went, he and she was to spend their abilities, their time in worshipping and glorifying God. This was their commission. But as we all know, sin entered the world. Satan spoke into Eve's ear and they rebelled against God. They disobeyed him. So sin entered the earth and corrupted everything. But this did not change God's commission to mankind. It made it harder to fulfil it, but it didn't change it. So after sin entered the earth, the commission was even more necessary, more urgent 
because it was necessary to demonstrate in a sinful world that God was holy. God was the living God and he was the sovereign ruler in the face of those who hated such a claim. And the story of the people of Israel, the people chosen out by God to be lights for him and to worship him and to speak to other people of the true God. That was their task, that was their commission. Unfortunately, as you all know, they tended to become inward-looking and they tended to think, well, this precious truth that God has given to us, it's ours. And we're not going to share it with Gentiles, with unclean people. It's ours. It's exclusive to us. And they lost sight of the commission that God had given to them. And then came Jesus, the Son of God, who came to revive, refresh, restore that original vision. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to condemn, but to save. He came to overturn the evil that had come about through Adam and Eve. He came to remind all people that God's great purpose for this earth and for mankind had not changed. So he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. He had received that commission from God the Father himself. You recall that when uh, Jesus was, after he was baptised, the dove came down, the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and the voice of the Father said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So God was saying, he has my imprimatur on him. He is here to restore things. Not to destroy things, but to restore things. Listen to him. So he came to empower men and women to overturn evil, to overturn the effects of sin and of Satan, to set them free from the shackles of sin and to set them free to serve God as they originally were called. He came to empower men and women, boys and girls, to change the world. But secondly, who? Who is the receiver of this commission? And the answer to this is very simple, and you all know it. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Now, there are two principles involved in this. Jesus says that they are to make disciples, and the word disciple, as you all know, is related to the word discipline. A disciple is someone who is a disciplined follower of a group of teachings or of a person. Uh, that's what a disciple is. So a disciple is not just a hanger-on. Some people think because they go to church Christmas and Easter and maybe to a wedding or two here and there, that makes them disciples of Jesus. We don't say anything bad about him and we go to church Christmas and we go to church on Easter. So, you know, we're okay. No, no, no. That's just being a hanger-on. A disciple 
is someone who is serious, who is disciplined about applying all of the teaching of Jesus Christ to all of life. Jesus says that they are to be from all the nations. Now, you can think of this in two ways. It can mean to make disciples from amongst all the nations, but it can also mean to make disciples of the nations. In other words, so preach and teach so thoroughly that from the leaders to the people all acknowledge the rule of the mighty God. When the Germanic tribes of Eastern Europe were sweeping down through Western Europe into Italy, into Spain and so on, this was like several hundred years after the time of Christ. A strange thing happened because missionaries went to them, which was very brave of them. Missionaries went to them and they proclaimed the gospel. But they went, first of all, to the chiefs, to the kings, to the leaders of these Germanic tribes, and they said, you know, this is the message that we're bringing to your people. And they did that deliberately because they knew if they could go to the leaders and the leaders said, yeah, we understand that, we, we believe that, we want that, then that would mean that they had the whole tribe on side. Now, it didn't mean that every single person was a believer, but it meant that the whole ethos of the tribe was changing. And then they had a free hand to evangelize amongst all the people, the ordinary people. And when, Christ, when missionaries from Christian Ireland went across to Scotland and England to evangelize, and those of you who have a Scottish or an English background, you mightn't like me pointing out that the gospel came first from Ireland across to them, they went to the leaders as well as to the ordinary people. Why? Because they saw that these two points were both true. Make disciples from among the nations, and if you can, make disciples of the nations. Now, I think I'm right in saying that we tend to have a defeatist view in the year 2022 in Australia, we are convinced that the rulers of Australia or any other country will not be interested in our gospel. So we just go quietly, tiptoe, to ordinary people. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that. All I am saying is that we also need to take seriously praying for and doing whatever we can to evangelise the leaders of our state and of our country. Because once we get one, one of those who has become a true disciple, a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ, what a difference it could make to change the world. So that's the second thing that we've looked at. Who? And the last thing is when. When is this to happen? And the answer to this is quite clear. Jesus says in this verse, and it doesn't come out so clearly in the English, that's true, but he says, keep on going. It sounds like, what's the word, movie about Nemo? Keep on, yeah, swimming, keep on swimming. It's a bit like that. Keep on going, keep on making, 
keep on baptizing, keep on teaching, these are all to be continuing activities. The Christian church has never been told by her master to discontinue these activities. Okay, you've done enough now, that's it, right, just sit back, relax. She has never been told to settle back and enjoy her success and bask in the glory of obstacles overcome and objectives achieved. She never has been told to conduct a mission or a crusade and then settle back and congratulate herself on the numbers who have been contacted, the numbers who have been won to the law. She has been commanded to go on and to keep on going. And this has always been a distinctive of the Christian church, at least when she is faithful to her Lord. As she is evangelising one area, her eyes are on another area that does not yet know the gospel. And she is thinking, what about them? We need to take the gospel to them. This has always been a feature of the Christian church when she has been faithful to her Lord. Sometimes people will say to us who are Christians, look, why can't you just leave people alone? People have their own religion. They're happy with that. Leave them alone. If you must go to people, well, go to people who don't have any religion. I'm not sure where they are, but uh, that's what they think. We have got to say, we are under orders to take the good news of Jesus Christ to all people who have not heard that they might hear and repent and turn to the living way that will save them from hell and give them eternal life and heaven. So, to get back to our original question that we started with, is changing the world hopeless? Is it a waste of time? Is it perhaps wrong? And surely the answer to that question is a resounding no. We are under orders to transform the world and it starts in Genesis and it is restated in our Lord Jesus Christ and we know why. Our reason is to bring the whole world to acknowledge and worship the one true almighty God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are not to make distinctions. We are not to take it upon ourselves to determine who are likely candidates for the gospel and who are not. We are to take the, people, the gospel to all people, from leaders to people, to make disciples of all the nations. And then thirdly, we are to keep on doing this to the end of the age. The church has no mandate to pull back from this work. The church is to keep on going and preaching and teaching and making disciples. The church is the keeper of the most precious message that this world has ever heard of, ever seen. And if people do not hear it from the church, how are they going to hear it? You and I know this message. It's a glorious message about a living, faithful, merciful saviour who gave his life on the cross to take the punishment for our sins and to take upon himself the curse of the offended law of God. Jesus, God in Jesus Christ has done this for us on our behalf. No one else has such a message. No one. Who will take it to people? Certainly not Satan. 
Certainly not people who have not had the bondage of sin broken. No, it must come from you and me. It must come from the church of Jesus Christ. So, to sum it all up, do we concern ourselves with changing the world? We certainly do. God intends that the world will be changed and it will be changed by the gospel and it will be changed by the activity of his church. This is certain. Let's come before God in prayer. Father, bless us as we think about the teachings of your holy word and particularly, Lord, the commission that you have given to your church, the commission that Jesus gives to us at the end of Matthew's gospel. As we ponder it, as we study it, help us, Father, to follow you, to be disciples of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And we ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.